the Roman Martyrology for the eighth day of April. The commemoration of Saints Herodian, Asyncritus, and Phlegon, who are mentioned by Blessed Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Romans. At Alexandria in the time of Emperor Maximian Galerius, the martyr Saint Edesius, brother of the Blessed Aphian, because he publicly reproved the wicked judge who delivered to corruptors virgins consecrated to God. He was arrested by the soldiers, exposed to the most severe torments, and thrown into the sea for the sake of Christ our Lord. In Africa, the holy martyrs Januarius, Maxima, and Macaria. At Carthage, the martyr St. Conchessa. At Corinth, Bishop St. Denis who instructed not only the people of his own city and province by the learning and charm with which he preached the word of God, but also the bishops of other cities and provinces by the letters he wrote to them. His devotion to the Roman pontiffs was such that he was accustomed to read their letters publicly in the church on Sundays. He lived in the time of Marcus Antoninus Verus and Lucius Aurelius Commodus. At Tours in France, the holy bishop Perpetuus, a man of great sanctity. At Ferentino in Campania, Bishop St. Redemptus, who is mentioned by Pope St. Gregory. At Como, St. Amantius, bishop and confessor. And in other places, many other holy martyrs, confessors, and virgins. Thanks be to God. Hello, this is the St. Peter and Volo podcast. I'm Father Nathan. Today is Spy Wednesday, and I'm out of the studio, and uh, yet I would like to record something for you. Uh, Not a regular conversation, um, but just a reading to put our mind uh, in the Passion of Our Lord. So I'll be reading an excerpt of the Passion of Our Lord by His Eminence Gaetano Cardinal de Lai, Bishop of Sabina, which was translated from the Italian by His Eminence William Cardinal O'Connell, Archbishop of Boston. And this, uh, the copyright on this book is 1923. He felt the profound necessity of being entirely alone, alone with his father, to reveal to him freely the fullness of his soul and to breathe the prayer of our redemption. Prostrate with his face to the earth, he groaned and said, My father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Father, father, everything is possible with thee. Take away this chalice from me, yet not as I will, but as thou willest. How deep the mystery in this suffering of our Lord. Had he not said once, I have a baptism wherewith I am to be baptized, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Had he not just proclaimed in the cynical, with a great desire have I desired to eat this pasch with you? Did he not therefore, in union with his Father's will, desire the fulfilling of his terrible passion? Surely he did. Why therefore this awful grief? this profound sorrow which makes him exclaim that his soul is sorrowful even unto death. The Son of God, taking upon himself the nature of man, became similar to us in all things, 
sin accepted. And so as man he suffered hunger and thirst. He felt fatigue and weariness. He exulted at the resurrection of Lazarus and wept over Jerusalem. So now in the shadow of his great passion, there arose within him the terror which reigns in every human heart at the sight of sacrifice. And then too he must have thought, what good will all this suffering do? What will all my pain and anguish avail? By the light of that divinity which illumined the soul of the Redeemer, he saw not only the terrors of the passion just before him, but he also saw its consequences throughout all succeeding ages. In that supreme hour, so the fathers and all the mystics agree, passed as if in a picture all the senses of his sacred passion. He saw the horrible torture which he must soon undergo. He saw the treachery of Judas, the desertion of the apostles, the yelling of the crowd before the judgment seat, the flagellation, the crowning with thorns, the crucifixion, and the bitter jests flung at him while hanging on the cross. Before his soul divinely enlightened, Jesus reviewed the whole story of human events till the end of the world. He saw the heroism of the martyrs, the virtue of the saints, and the immense love for him of an innumerable multitude of Christians. This sight consoled his breaking heart. But he saw, too, the vices, the sins, the abominations of the whole perverse world, the heresies and the schisms which would rend his holy church and profane the sanctuary. He saw the sufferings of many souls dear to him caused by the injustice of others. He saw, too, alas, and this was the culmination of his grief, the uselessness of all his sufferings for a great multitude of the wicked to whom his divine passion would be only an added argument for greater irritation and anger, as Simeon had prophesied. This child is set for the fall and the resurrection of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted. At the sight of all this his heart was crushed within him. But his grief and terror certainly did not mean his refusal to face his terrible passion and to undergo it all, since often he had told of the necessity of his sacrifice and his willingness to accept it. So, through terif- so though terrified at the awful vision spread before him, and weak until death, with sadness at the sight of it, still he went to meet it, all with firm and resolute will. Just as the patient may abhor the disgusting taste of the medicine, but he takes it because it is helpful, as St. Thomas so aptly says. But it was not only the vision of the suffering immediately confronting him, and of the future trials of his church and his faithful followers which weighed down the heart of Christ in deep anguish, nor was it alone the desolating picture of all the ingratitude of humanity and the uselessness of his passion for many that grieved him so sorely, there was still another motive even more exalted and more noble. He was torn with grief at the sight of our sins, and he begged God, his eternal Father, to pardon them. He bore upon his own shoulders the sins of the whole world. 
He assumed our sins, and he suffered for them, writes St. Ambrose. He suffered for the sins of all, St. Thomas writes. Not only that, the grief and the sorrow of Christ for sins surpassed the contrition of all sinners, continues St. Thomas, because our Lord, more than anyone else, understood the iniquity of sin, and because upon his soul was laid the whole weight of all the sorrow and remorse of every sinner in the whole world. History tells us the story of many a sinner who, face to face with the horror of his own faults and lapses, touched by a ray of divine grace, became utterly inconsolable, wept torrents of tears, fainted, and some even died of grief at the feet of their confessor. Imagine, then, the torture which seized upon the soul of Christ as he gazed with the saddest of eyes upon all the innumerable and indescribable burdens of human iniquity, which now were heaped upon him, an innocent victim of their malice. No wonder he cried aloud with a breaking heart, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And his human strength being unable further to bear the awful burden, he fell upon the ground prone in fearful agony, and the blood rushed out of every pore of his body. Here we must note the words of St. Ambrose. He is sorrowful, not he himself, not the divine substance, but the soul of Christ. For divinity suffers not, but the humanity of Christ suffered the most exquisite torments. Here we must consider the sublime efficacy of the words of the works and deeds of Christ for the redemption of humanity. The rebellion and the offense of a miserable creature of earth in its moral effects reach the infinite, and therefore such offense can never be adequately atoned for except by a grief and sorrow of infinite value and by a penitence of infinite worth. Hence man alone of himself as a finite being is incapable of satisfying the divine justice, no matter how great his grief or how deep his penitence. But behold, the Son of God comes down from heaven, takes up our human nature, a human soul and a human body, and as man offers to his divine Father his prayers and supplications for us, and undergoes for us his own terrible passion and death. Because his prayers and his sufferings are of infinite value, he being God as well as man, they supply what no merit of ours alone could ever give. As in the case of a man composed of body and soul, who suffers or is wounded in any single member, he suffers and is wounded as a man. So Christ, a person human, divine, suffering in his humanity, suffers as Christ, that is, as the man-god. And his acts, precisely because they are those of a man-god, have an infinite value. O wonderful providence of God, which thus conciliates the perfect satisfaction of divine justice with pity and mercy towards man, O the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how incomprehensible are his judgments, how unsearchable his ways. O what should be our gratitude towards our Heavenly Father, who for us gave his only begotten Son, 
And how can we ever show our sentiments of deep thankfulness to Christ, who by his prayers and tears and the awful sufferings of his sacred passion has saved us from the consequences of the sin of Adam and the results of our own sins? For an hour thus Jesus remained in prayer, trembling and weak, at last he rose and made his way, tottering towards the three apostles, whom he had left a short distance away. Perhaps he thought to find in their company some slight respite from the terror which had overwhelmed his soul, as one seeks his friends when his soul is overwhelmed with grief. And then, too, as the faithful shepherd, he was still anxious about the welfare of his little flock. He found them sleeping. They, too, had been overwhelmed with grief, as St. Luke clearly indicates. Sweetly he complains to them, saying to Peter, Simon, dost thou sleep? Couldst thou not watch one hour with me? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Surely this was no light fault on the part of the three chosen apostles. They had begun well, praying together with sorrowful souls, but soon in the absence of the Master, their forces began to fail them, and nature conquered. Christ knew all this, and, and if, as if to excuse them and comfort them, said, This spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here the fathers and the doctors of the church admonish that the omission of prayer in time of great anxiety weakened in the apostles that special grace which alone could keep them strong, and thus they were exposed to the weakness of the flesh and of nature. Once more the master, with labored steps, slowly bowed in weakness, sought solitude in prayer. The apostles watched him with anxious eyes, terrified beyond words at the sight of his unspeakable grief and weakness. An awful sorrow seized upon their souls, and they too began to pray in silence. Upon his knees, with his eyes lifted towards heaven, the Divine Master raised again his trembling voice. Father, if it is not possible that this chalice should pass unless I drink it, thy will be done. The prayer is the same in general as the one he had offered a short time before. Only now one sees more clearly the complete resignation of Christ to the sacrifice. Again, after some time, he returned to the three apostles, but again he found them overwhelmed with weakness and dead asleep. Feeling his presence near them, they awoke in terror and bounded to their feet. And St. Mark says that in their confusion they knew not what to answer him. Again they had failed in fidelity. They had slept while he was suffering his terrible agony. For the third time Jesus retired to the solitude of prayer, and again besought God to hear him. And here St. Luke narrates an incident of striking importance. In the midst of his agony, there appeared to him an angel from heaven to comfort him. And as the agony of his soul increased, he prayed even more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, which rained down over his body to the earth. History narrates the example of various people who at the time of unspeakable anguish have sweated blood. 
The description, therefore, of St. Luke helps us the better to realize the force of the words of Christ. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Here let us remark in passing that though this particular description of St. Luke is omitted in some of the Greek and Latin codices, St. Epiphanius explains the omission by stating that the copyists of the time, fearing that the Arians would use that text to sustain their heresy against the divinity of Christ, left these words out. But the codices which the Church has always retained as authentic and complete give the words of St. Luke as narrated. In fact, all the ancient fathers, St. Justin, St. John Chrysostom, St. Hilary, St. Epiphanius, and others, comment upon it expressly as indicating the intensity of the love of Christ for sinners. Let us stop for a moment to consider these words of St. Luke. As the angels of heaven had chanted the Gloria in Excelsis, above the crib of the newborn Messiah, as they had appeared to him in the desert after his long fast in the temptation of Satan, so now an angel of the Lord appears to Jesus, adoring him and offering to him in his suffering heavenly words of consolation. On that awful night, when he was about to be betrayed, while the pontiffs and princes of his people were preparing for him an ignominious and cruel death, when abandoned by all, even by his three most faithful disciples, his heavenly Father sends him one of his angels to stay by him and comfort him in his hour of unspeakable sorrow. What may have been the consoling words which this angel of God addressed to his suffering Lord? Did he perchance reveal to him the dread necessity of his awful sacrifice, the incalculable good which would result from it for all eternity? Did he tell him of the infinite glory it would give forevermore to his divine Father, or unveil to him how millions upon millions of men, filled with immense love for him, would exalt his name above every other name, until time should be no more, and that generation after generation of his faithful followers would bend the knee at the mention of his holy name, and that all in heaven on earth and in hell would henceforth acknowledge him as the Savior. The evangelists say nothing of this, but surely Christ, by the apparition and with the consolation of the angel of God, gathered strength to face the bitter end. Yet the evangelist narrates that after the apparition of the angel, Jesus entered into his agony and sweated blood. What human soul can solve these sublime mysteries entirely? But many of those who have meditated upon the passion of Christ believe that, while our blessed Lord was strengthened and consoled in his full acceptance of the chalice offered him to drink, the struggle between his will and the mere human inclinations of his human nature and the senses was so great that it caused the same phenomena as one sees in the death agony. The terror which Christ felt affected the heart with such a violent constriction that a cold sweat diffused itself all over his body, and this cold sweat, by the reaction and impulse of the heart, became little by little tinged with blood which bathed his forehead and the members of his body so copiously that it dropped upon the earth where he knelt.
O ineffable mystery of the sorrow and the love of Jesus Christ. Many fathers and theologians hold that at this awful time of Christ's suffering, this bloody sweat was caused by the struggle of the soul of Christ with eternal justice. That he, the new Adam, prayed that the sentence of death upon the old Adam, who had brought sin upon the world, might be abrogated. Indeed, agony in its original Greek sense means struggle, and especially the supreme struggle which man makes at the hour of death. St. Ambrose, speaking of the agony of Christ, says, He struggled for me, that he might conquer for me. Some writers see in the agony of Christ something of a similar instance in the case of Jacob struggling with the angel and not letting him go until he had blessed him. St. Isidore writes, In his passion, Christ, in the weakness of his human nature, seems to overcome God. And this also is the thought of St. Paul when he writes, Who in the days of his flesh, with a strong cry and tears, offering up prayers and supplications to him that was able to save him from death, was heard for his reverence. We see, therefore, how this fearful agony of Christ was a supreme struggle of grief and love on the part of our blessed Lord, so violent and so terrible that it made him sweat even more blood for our salvation. O Divine Redeemer, how can we ever thank thee for all thy wonderful mercy and goodness, for thy tears and thy prayers, and the dread agony of thy suffering for us and for our salvation? One may ask, who was this consoling angel sent by the Divine Father to his suffering son? It is generally believed to be the Archangel Gabriel, whom we have known as the privileged messenger of heaven in the work of redemption. He it was who was sent to Daniel to indicate to him five centuries before the precise epoch of this great event. He it was who predicted to Zachary the birth of the precursor, and it was he also who announced to Mary the most holy, the great Annunciation. It is reasonable to believe that now again he comes down to earth with a message of consolation and fortitude from the Eternal Father to the God-man in agony. Consoled and strengthened by the words of the angel, and feeling assured now that he had been heard by his Divine Father, the Master arose and for the third time returned to the three disciples, whom for the third time he found in deep slumber. Sleep ye now, he says, and take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Behold, he that will betray me is at hand. And in truth already, through the shadow of the trees, near the bridge above the brook Cedron, may be seen advancing slowly and cautiously, looking slyly hither and thither as they advanced, a large group of men. This was an excerpt of The Passion of Our Lord by His Eminence Jaitano Cardinal de Lai, translated by His Eminence William Cardinal O'Connell. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode recorded in studio, which will focus on Holy Thursday. Please tune in to St. John Cantius. 
for our live streams of the Sacred Triduum beginning on Wednesday evening at 7.30 with the Office of Tenebrae. God bless you and know that you are in our prayers and are in our attentions for Mass and for all the celebrations of this Sacred Triduum.